Hi, Eric. Hi, Aaron. Hey, so this is an exciting episode. We have a guest. We do indeed. I'd like to introduce Tanner McAllister. Hi, Tanner. Hey, how you doing? Tell us a bit about yourself, Tanner. Yeah, um, I'm a PhD student in Buddhist studies at Cal, uh, working in Buddhist philology, the critical study of ancient Buddhist texts in their original language. Uh, my area of expertise is classical Tibetan and classical Tibetan apocryphal literature. I work especially on this genre of Tibetan Buddhist literature called terma, which literally means treasure. It's a set of revealed uh, texts beginning in roughly the 11th century. I work mostly in the 14th century. Um, and so what I do now is mostly reading the text and writing about issues of political theology um, and religious studies broadly. Um, but before I got into this project, I was doing a master's in religious studies at the Harvard Divinity School and, and was interested in comparing how these texts are revealed to other similar instances in the history of religion, and especially Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon. Um, so happy to be here to talk about it. Ah, fabulous. Okay, so um, today we are doing an episode on um, another one of our chapters in our DYU Studies article. Um, I got it. The Book of Mormon Translation Process by Grant Hardy, who is a person who's been mentioned on the show a lot. He uh, is two versions of, actually, I think he's up to three versions now of um, typesetting the Book of Mormon to be more accessible to modern readers are terrific. And understanding the Book of Mormon is maybe my favorite literary analysis of the Book of Mormon. So, Why is that? Uh, just because I, I think it's good. <laughs> he he makes a lot of really sound observations about the structure of the text. And um, to, to me, as, as a literary person, I just find serious treatment of the Book of Mormon as literature to be um, rewarding and Honestly, um, given my proclivities, I, I find the literary wholeness of the Book of Mormon to be, um, personally, I think a great proof of the Book of Mormon. This is fantastic. It's a more pleasurable thing to read. Yeah. Mm. Um, well, this, it's very exciting to have you, Tanner, because um, we've been saving this one ever since that we saw your article in Dialogue. Um, we're a proud member of the Dialogue podcast network, as it turns out. Um, our show and many other shows are all available through dialogue and can be found on fine platforms everywhere. <laughs> mm. um, we are excited because, um, well, we love dialogue and it's very fun to read articles in it. And yours seems like an excellent place to go after this Grant Hardy dialogue so what i mean by that is this is eric actually what you were saying here before we started talking do you want to say what you said again right so the grant hardy article uh like all the articles in the BYU studies issue yet to be revealed talks about the lack of certainty we have in terms of how the book of mormon was translated uh mm. did joseph smith see words in the seer stone did he um was he given specific words or was it just feelings that he translated into words. And there's good evidence for every possible variation on this. Mm. Um, with the exception of a fascinating footnote, which I want to talk about in just a second, I don't think there was anything in the article that I hadn't heard before. 
and mm -hmm. maybe very little that we haven't talked about. I mean, our show is called Faith in Hats. Like we've talked about this stuff before. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he laid it out in a very clean, understandable way. I think it's a great primer for someone who hasn't thought about this stuff before. Um, mm -hmm. And then the footnote of the idea that I had never heard mentioned before. I don't know if you've heard this before, Tanner, you being a theologian, know things I don't know. But a guy named Roger Terry suggested that the uh, inconsistencies in the text might suggest that the translation wasn't by Joseph Smith, but instead by, quote, an immortal being with an incomplete grasp of English grammar, perhaps someone like the post-mortal Moroni. Well, I've never heard that. <laughs> Which I love that. <laughs> yes, I also translation was fascinated that, by that. That Joseph Smith is reading, like, what a, what a beautiful solution to the problem. <laughs> okay, anyway, now, listen, that was new to me. We should we need to back up a little bit. Let's. Um, so Tanner, our show we couch it in terms of um, language that we think that we could uh, that Mormons could understand, right? Mm -hmm. That are um, familiar with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. And that have studied some of its history, but not a lot of it. Kind of the kind of the the lay Mormon, as it were. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we also actually have a few non-members who listen to our show, and so we also try to um, introduce topics broadly before going deep on them. Yeah. If you were going to restate, Eric, what you said was the fundamental question in this article. How would you do so? So Joseph Smith was given plates and he translated them. How the heck did that work? Okay. But well, every every question that we've answered so far has been binary. Okay. Yes, you've made that claim and you've managed to prove it every time. I suppose this one could be rendered a binary question more than one way. Like, did Joseph Smith see the exact text that we now have for instance that would be a yes no question uh did the um ancient text get filtered through joseph Smith? that'd be a yes no question i think it actually there's a lot of yes no questions did you find a single yes no question Aaron, that you feel encapsulated <laughs> the article no it's kind of what you were just saying joseph smith um took his face uh he put it in a hat inside that hat was a chocolate covered chocolate covered whoa a chocolate colored <laughs> uh stone and next to the next to this whole apparatus was um, plates covered in a cloth, and um, the words from um, Martin Harris, which were not corroborated by any other witness, but that he said was by aid of the seer stone, sentences would appear and were read by the prophet, and when yeah. finished, he would say written, and if correctly written, the sentence would disappear and another appear in its place, but. If not correctly written, it remained until corrected, right? And Joseph Smith would spell out difficult, difficult name words or names. Um, oh, and I guess other witnesses gave similar reports, but um, and differing reports, both happened. and different differing reports. So, did Joseph Smith? So, one thing that definitely didn't happen is Joseph Smith reading from the gold plates with um, spectacles on. Um, and the spectacles were the Urim and Thummim and um, got a magical translation as you read them, right? We're fairly sure that never happened. As I was taught in primary. Yes. Which is what I was taught in <laughs> primary, right? Yeah, that's what I was taught in primary as well. 
because the uh, there's art there's good art mm-hmm. of uh of this ha- of this happening this way yeah so instead it was hat and it was text okay so so isn't that so, enough why is there no, a controversy but, anyway it's complicated there do, do you want to i mean we could talk about this but actually i kind of want to turn to tanner here um tanner you i think sold yourself a little short in your um self-introduction you are a translator yourself as you mentioned but it, mm-hmm. i mean you teach tibetan buddhists how to translate tibetan buddhist texts like you're you're uh i think it is a reasonable thing to say that you are um as expert in this as um you know someone in your place should be um you know about translation especially the way we use translation uh in modern times we treat the word translation to mean taking something from one language into another language like mm-hmm. and pouring over the academic problem of what does something mean um, and this is, I assume, a fair description of your experience. Yeah, yeah, definitely what I try to do. As a translator um, yourself, like, how, how do you think about this question of, like, what Joseph Smith did? Like, like I assume the question feels a little differently to you now than it did 10 years ago. Yeah, I mean, a lot of what I've, you know, written about in terms of what Joseph Smith did is informed by... Um, you know, a, a, a recent article about what translation could have meant to Joseph Smith in his historical context, right? And so there's an article by Kathleen Flake um, earlier, I think it was published in the early 2000s, um, about this issue to some extent, and then it's taken up, you know, in more detail by, and I'm blanking on the 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 name, just in this recent Hickman? 20... Hickman by uh, Hickman's article, right? Um, that, you know, translation in, in, in Joseph Smith's historical context meant so many more things, right? Um, than it did today. It meant to, to transport something to a new place. It meant to repair something. Um, and also that Joseph Smith, you know, he was very familiar with this verse in, in, the, in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament that talks about Enoch being translated. Right? It was one of the most commonly cited verses in the, in the whole restoration. Um, this idea of moving a physical body from one place to another as being an act of translation. Um, you know, in my own work of translation, I mean, I'm, you know, translating texts from Tibetan to English, often that had originals in Sanskrit. Um, and so you're working across multiple languages into a different language. And so things always have to change. You have to add new words, add new concepts. Um, the semantic range of a word is never identical moving across languages. I mean, you go from, for example, Sanskrit has a very wide vocabulary and you'll have like 10 words that'll get translated into one Tibetan word. And then you move to Tibetan to English that then has, a, again, a wider semantic range. And so then you end up translating one Tibetan word in like 10 different English ways. And so you begin to see very quickly that the idea that there could ever be a perfect literal translation of any language into another language, that doesn't work in and of itself. But then you add on these issues that Aaron has been talking about that, you know, if we look at how Joseph Smith seems to have experienced the translation and the mechanics of the translation, it definitely doesn't look like what I do or what any other modern translator does. And I think that's a huge, huge issue. Mm-hmm. I, all I want to do is talk to you about this, Tanner. Okay. And we're going to have some time to really yeah. go deep on, I just have so many questions for you about what, about what you do, 
what is it like how does it work and how does it relate to joseph smith mm -hmm. but i want to make sure to start with the reason why this is such an interesting question to lds members of the church right because there's this i mean we're gonna if you don't i tend to speak in absolutes tanner mm. just to get the conversation started right and when i know that the answer is going to be in grace so mm. let me go ahead and state an absolute right um joseph smith was a prophet of god joseph smith was a fraud okay mm. two different two different things on a on a spectrum okay and and that language putting it that way immediately couches the language of the conversation in terms yeah. of um, the way that scholars have always approached this. And I may be stealing some of your ideas from your from your article and from the other article. I've kind of lost track. <laughs> <laughs> but the idea of um, historicity as being foremostly important, right? Yeah, so yeah. if Joseph Smith had an anachronism, right, in the Book of Mormon, that means the Book of Mormon can't be true and it's a fraud. Right, where an anachronism could be an elephant, a horse, some mention of cement, or something like that. And yeah. if it was a literal translation, then it could never work. Right. Yeah. But if it was a figurative translation and instead the words came differently to him in some way that was filtered through him, yeah. right, some kind of figurative one, then but then everything could work. Yeah. I'm such a newbie when it comes to talking like this. Can you take my words and reshuffle them and make them more intelligible? <laughs> yeah, I think I think you summarized it really well. Um, you know, I think you know in in Grant Hardy's article, um, you know, he presents these two sides, right? One being that revelation is always a human product. He says mod modulated by its human recipients. Right. So that anything that Joseph Smith may have, quote unquote, translated or received by revelation has to be moderated through his own lens, which will then reflect, you know, his own language and his own historical context and his own interest. Um, and then you have this view that, you know, today, I think, you know, held up perhaps most strongly by rural Skousen. Um, but it's also something that is voiced in, you know, just kind of Mormon devotional literature and, and talks. I mean, I remember, like, as a missionary, listening to somebody like Brad Wilcox, right, like, paint this, this binary in a very convincing way, and then show why Joseph Smith must have been a prophet, because there's all these archaisms in the Book of Mormon. And as a believer, it's a very comforting type of talk to listen to. Right. Um, the one thing I will say about, you know, Grant Hardy's article is he does, I think, present these binaries primarily in terms of internal evidence, in terms of internal historical evidence. Right. So we're, we're reading deeply into the text and then we're projecting out on what Joseph Smith could have been doing based on this evidence. Um, and in that, through that, like methodology of of kind of trying to ascertain what Joseph Smith was doing. The one person that I think has broken that binary pretty well, who was just kind of footnoted in the text, is Blake Osler. He has an article in 1987 in Dialogue. It's called um, 
the Book of Mormon is a modern expansion of an ancient source. And his argument is that, you know, both things can be true, that Joseph Smith can have access to an ancient source, and that because he has access to it, there are archaisms that can come through in his translation. But he's also presenting it to a modern audience. And that's a major part of the Book of Mormon is to take an ancient wisdom and apply it to modern needs. And so okay. you would also have, you know, anachronisms. Um, okay, so if there, I just want to yeah. stop you for a second. Yeah. Can you just say the difference between an anachronism and an archaism? Yeah. Yeah, so an archaism is something that would precede a given historical context. Right? So it'd be something like... Um, you know, Joseph Smith using uh, a Hebrew word that he wouldn't have had access to, using it correctly. And, you know, we'd have a very difficult time explaining how he did that if he didn't have access to an ancient text. Right? Mm -hmm. And an anachronism is something that it's presented as being part of a past, but it doesn't fit in the context people are trying to put it in. Um, I mean, I think the, the probably the strongest example of that in the Book of Mormon is that, you know, Joseph Smith presents his character Nephi, right, writing the words of Isaiah just around the time or just after the time of the Babylonian exile. But according to like modern, you know, historical critical analyses of the, the Book of Isaiah, these are texts that would have far post-dated Isaiah. The, the, well, sorry, would have far post-dated Nephi because we think there were multiple quote-unquote Isaiahs. There was a school of kind of Isaiah's thought that was written in the Bible. Right? So we have something that's being presented as, as, I don't know, 6th century BCE. But according to historical, you know, but according to like modern kind of historical thinking, it, it just wouldn't fit that context. Okay, thank you for explaining. Um, yeah. I'm very, I'm very, very interested in what you said about breaking through this binary. And I just want to restate it, mainly for my own sake, right? So Joseph Smith, and again, I know this is reductive. Joseph Smith either saw words and copied them directly, meaning that the original authors of the Book of Mormon wrote exactly the English <laughs> words. Right. Or yeah. may, let me just say, may I say it differently? Trans he translated it directly. Yeah. Sorry, According or, to whatever the divine intention was. Yeah. So in other words, God told Joseph Smith these are the words to write down. Okay. Or it was more impressions, it was more feelings, it was more interpreting of a story. Yeah. And um, as such, there's a mixture of accurate translation and interpretation. How am I doing? Tell me. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Where are you headed, Aaron? <laughs> Here's where I'm going with this. I'm trying to get to the end of the Hardy article so that we can talk about Tanner's work. Okay. And the end of it leaves open this question. The article says, here's a bunch of evidence for one argument for one side. And here's a bunch of evidence for the other. Right. Um, and the evidence is pretty compelling both ways. And the conclusion is new, perhaps new evidence will someday be uncovered or further yeah. studies may refine our understanding of the data currently available. 
But in the meantime, we might well agree with Emma Smith, who said that even as an eyewitness to the process, it is marvelous to me, a marvel and a wonder, as much so as to anyone else. So both sides kind of are in tension, is what he says. Yeah, and this tension is fertile ground for faith. Uh, we don't need certainty for faith. Um, and there, there is a tension here, because it's, um, as you as you summarize accurately, I think there's there's good evidence for just about any any way you want to interpret Joseph Smith's accomplishments, there's evidence for it. I find the Isaiah thing particularly annoying, Tanner. <laughs> I don't think you're alone. <laughs> I find the anachronisms annoying. Mm -hmm. Like um, on the show, I should say, Eric and I are very careful to state that we are believers. <laughs> yeah. Right? But that's not the point. We're here as scholars. And I find those things annoying. Like mm -hmm. they really irritate me. And I, I, the only thing I've been able to do is just, you know, do some Googling and see what kind of apologetics exists out yeah. there for them. But I've never been able to just dismiss them. Yeah. Less scholarship than dilettanteism. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think the Isaiah problem is one of the strongest cases against the, the, the literal translation. Um, but even there, you know, I mean, I think, you know, what, a, what an apologist could say is that, you know, like historical critical readings of the Bible are based on an assumption that prophecy is not real. Right? Prophecy doesn't work. So if we find some, if we find a prophet accurately prophesying about events that couldn't have happened in their lifetime, then the assumption is that they didn't actually write it, that it was written after these events actually happened and then were retroactively projected onto them, right? And from the perspective of a believer, that assumption doesn't necessarily hold. Um, you know, I also, I try to be really patient with the issues because, you know, I just think back to like people in like the early, you know, I don't know, early 20th century or people like B.H. Roberts and the kind of issues that they were dealing with, many of the critiques of the Book of Mormon made back then, today are no longer valid. But unless you were like, you know, I don't know, a cutting edge, like a researcher of that time, you just wouldn't have had access to any of that information. You know, you wouldn't have had any way to assess those arguments in the way that we have today. So it is hard to, it's hard, it's hard to, to like go too deep on the criticisms. But it's also, but that also means that these supposed archaisms in the Book of Mormon, we have to be humble about those too, because in a hundred years, many of those could be debunked. So, so. Patience. <laughs> Patience. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the reasons why, you know, I mean, I think you can destruct these binary in, in a few ways. You know, one is just to talk about how translation actually works, right? And not even from Joseph Smith's perspective, from a modern perspective, the idea that you could literally or perfectly, or it's even hard to say to some extent correctly, translate a language from one to another. It's a very messy issue, right? Then the other, the other one is, you know, like I mentioned with Blake Osler's article, there is a way to join, you know, the different kind of internal evidences we have of the Book of Mormon into, into again, a comprehensive theory that doesn't have a large degree of tension. 
Um, and then what I try to do in my article is to say, is to question whether or not we can move so quickly from the eternal, internal evidence of the Book of Mormon, right? what, what we can gather from the kind of historical data about the writing, <laughs> and then move to say, this is what Joseph Smith was or was not doing, right? I think that's what's exciting about your article, Tanner, from a Latter-day Saint perspective, is that um, for most of us in our experience and our knowledge, Joseph Smith really stands alone. There isn't anyone really similar to him in the Christian tradition, but um, you have looked elsewhere in the world, and, and the Termod trans, uh, tradition is strikingly similar to Joseph Smith, yeah. and, and it provides a whole new set of uh, tools to think about Joseph Smith. Um, I think we should... Are you, are you okay, Aaron? Can we dive into... Oh, yeah, I'm here? ready. Let's do it. Um, so, so maybe start by just talk, talking us through what Termai is. I, I assume I'm saying that almost correctly, but yeah. wrongly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, tell us a little bit about this tradition in Tibetan Buddhism. Oh, yeah. we should state the name of the article, though. Um, so your article published in Dialogue is called The Production of the Book of Mormon in Light of a Tibetan Buddhist Parallel. By yeah, Tanner the winter McAllister. 2022 issue. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'll have links to all this stuff, of course, in the show notes. Um, yeah. 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 So the the term of tradition, um, it's you know, tradition of revealing ancient scripture. Um, it started around the 11th century. The claim being that particular individuals, um, had received either uh, visitations from supernatural beings and or had discovered scrolls that would point them in the direction of a scripture that had been buried in the ground. Um, it had been buried in the ground back in the 8th century by this really significant uh, Tibetan Buddhist teacher, and leader, um, he's referred to as a tantric master, a master of tantric Buddhism, which is a certain kind of esoteric Buddhist practice. Um, when Tibet became referred to as the second Buddha, um, Tanner, will you, will you say his yeah. name for us? Because I, reading the article, like trying to memorize that sequence of syllables and saying it correctly was was challenging. But oh yeah, his name is Padma Sambhava. Yeah, literally means the lotus born. The one who's born from a lotus. Yeah, according to his biographies, which is something that I am writing my dissertation on. There was a lotus born that, that grew out of a lake in the land of Odeon. And it opened up and there was a child sitting there. Um, and this was Padmasambhava, the one born from the lotus. Um, but the idea is that in the 8th century, he had the prophetic foresight that... Tibet would go through kind of religious and political turmoil, and that kind of the true Buddhism would become corrupted. Um, and also, he realized that there were particular teachings that wouldn't be suitable for his time and place, but would be suitable for the future practitioners. And so he gave teachings to his disciples that were then written down by his female consort, a lady named Yeshi Chogyal. 
and then they were buried in the ground, often with other uh, ritual material objects. Um, and then what I get into a lot is kind of the phenomenology of how these texts were revealed. Um, and I should say that this issue of how, you know, uh, a treasure revealer, a Tibetan treasure revealer brings these texts to light, it's by no means a settled issue. I mean, this is a tradition that begins in the 11th century and continues to the present day. It's typically associated with one school called the Nyingma tradition of Tibetan Buddhism, but it, it does seep into other traditions. Um, and there's not a whole lot of secondary scholarship on it. You know, and what I'm trying to do is produce literature about the tradition. And a few other people are doing that. But in this article, I'm very dependent on what had already been written, which is only about a few of these treasure revealers. So this isn't like the definitive account of how this works. But in the accounts that have been studied, um, it seems like what would typically happen is the, the treasure revealer, upon finding this text, it, you normally wouldn't be like completely written out. Like we often think of the gold plates, mm -hmm. right? That there, there was like, you know, a word for word, you know, transcription of this teaching, but that it was encoded in a secret language and often just a few syllables. And by discovering this text and kind of orienting oneself, you know, ritually in relation to the text, Right, putting oneself in, you could say, a proper kind of you know headspace. Then the 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 few characters, these secret characters written on the scroll, would be able to produce a memory of one having received this teaching in a previous lifetime, and then you would be able to then either write it down or or speak it to a scribe. Um, and so, you know, I mean, much of this is not directly applicable to Joseph Smith, but it's the idea that finding a material object and being in its presence can have dramatic effects on what's going on in your head, right? Such that when the whole process is done, you sit back and say, yeah, I didn't, I didn't produce that. Yeah, it might have come from my mouth, but I really translated that from a different language. It was written by somebody else. And it's the fact that like thousands of people have been saying this for thousands of years, right? I thought, oh, that's, that gives a new and a phenomenological way to think about what Joseph Smith could have been doing. I have questions, more fundamental questions. What is an yeah. example of a teaching that would have been propagated from the 8th century to the 11th century by means of a burial of a sacred text? And then a transmission of a of a translation, for lack of a better term, of that text mm -hmm. to the mind of the person who found it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So one example that I work on is I work on a set of biographies of this master that I mentioned, Padmasambhava, um, and he said to have been in Tibet for I mean it, it varies, but a long time. And worked a lot of miracles and done a lot of miraculous feats that normal people couldn't do. But if you look at like the imperial documents, yeah, texts from actually this period, 
the time period in which he was in Tibet is said to be different. Who he was is said to be different. The deeds he did is said to be different. Um, and so there's an idea that the people who lived at that time, they couldn't necessarily perceive what he was really doing because they weren't spiritually advanced enough. And so the knowledge of his true life, what he actually did in Tibet, right, it was only... It was only safe for later practitioners who were ready for that kind of information and for whom that information would be important in, in later times and thinking about what Tibet is and, and the religion that's supposed to be practiced there. Um, so that's just an example from my own work. Um, other examples are, you know, he's part of a tradition referred to as Tantric Buddhism, um, which, you know, very broadly consists of a set of secret practices that are aimed at helping you visualize yourself as a Buddha and then effectuating your enlightenment in that way. Um, and so a lot of the Terma texts are you know, ritual manuals for how to do that, but practices that weren't, weren't available to people back in the 8th century, but that were reserved for later time. Tanner, I know uh, Tibetan Buddhism has a different sense than um, Christians or Latter-day Saints specifically do when it comes to scripture or canon um, yeah. and what's official or not? Yeah. Like, how, how are various terma texts accepted by Tibetan Buddhists? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, so, um, you know, there is a canon of Buddhist literature that, you know, is attributed as being the words of the Buddha that lived in the fifth century BC, right? Um, in India, we call Shakyamuni Buddha or Siddhartha Gautama, right? And that's what we often refer to as the Pali Canon. It was written down in Pali around the turn of the Christian era. And, and I think, you know, the mode of legitimating that kind of scripture is very similar to how we talk about like the Bible. Is this the word of the Buddha or is it not, right? Is this the word of God or is it not? Right? We talk about the New Testament. Did Jesus actually teach these things? Did the apostles actually teach these things or didn't they? I have a very similar set of questions that are, that are used in authenticating Buddhist scripture. But then around, again, around the turn of the Christian era in India and other you know, neighboring countries, you begin to see people claim to reveal scriptures, but that aren't necessarily attributed to that historical Buddha who lived in India, but they're attributed to other Buddhas that live throughout the cosmos that, you know, reveal these scriptures in, in a typically a visionary way. Uh, we call these Mahayana scriptures, um, part of a, a big turn in Buddhism called Mahayana Buddhism or the great vehicle. And so the term of tradition operates in that same space, right? And saying that these are scriptures Right? They're true. They'll lead you to enlightenment. They weren't necessarily spoken by that one enlightened person that lived in India at this time, but they are really spoken by enlightened beings, right? but revealed in a visionary manner. Um, and the, the term of tradition operates in that same space. Um, I get into this. It's a little bit technical in my article, but there is a, there's a typical like series of revelation that's described in Mahayana Buddhism from like a certain like pre-verbal level down a number of stages to human beings. 
Padmasambhava operates in that same space. Um, he reveals those scriptures and then down to his 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 disciples. Um, and so that so that's you know that's the I think one of the primary arguments for arguing why they're authentic is that they do come from actual enlightened beings. Um, but then you can also find you know arguments that are very similar to like how we authenticate the Book of Mormon. People saying, hey, like practically these work. Right? Whether or not, regardless of where you think it came from, right? Read the text, put put into effect its practices. It actually works. Therefore, it must be true. Um, and then people also look at just the qualities of the people that revealed them. Right? They tell, you know, there's biographies of these treasure revealers and the miraculous deeds that they accomplished, and saying, look, there's no way that that person could have been lying. They were clearly, you know, a person, uh, they were clearly an enlightened person, quite similar to how we talk about Joseph Smith, right? Then look at his life. He did these amazing things. He worked miracles, you know, he, he must have been, he must have been a prophet of God. You mentioned that there, this tradition of discovering lost texts continues. Yeah. Can you talk more about that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's not like my primary area of research. Um, if anybody's interested, there's a scholar at um, in Colorado named Holly um, Gailey um, who works on the modern Tibetan um, the Tibetan Terma tradition. Um, I also, if, if people look at the article in the um, in one of my first footnotes, I think it's the third footnote. There's also a number of references to people who have studied the modern tradition. Um, but yeah, in, in Tibet to this day, there are people associated, particularly with the Nyingma tradition, but also what we call the Bunpo tradition of like Tibetan indigenous religion that still reveal these ancient texts. They find them in the ground or in rocks. Um, and then they, you know, translate them into, you know, modern Tibetan. Um, um, and there's been a number of anthropological studies of these events um, that are referenced in that third footnote in the article that people can look at. Um, what I find really interesting is that just from my own work, you know, this tradition started in the 11th century when the Tibetan Empire had collapsed in the back in the 9th century. And so you see the loss of like a, a centralized Tibetan government and then also with that a loss of like imperially sponsored Tibetan Buddhism. Um, so it's kind of the, the collapse of, of a, an officially recognized religion on some level. And then it's as the, as the empire is kind of pulling itself back together in the 11th century as part of like a, kind of an economic and political revival that you see these texts come forward about, you know, hey, here's what our history is really about. Right? Here's what it means for, here's what Tibet is as a nation. Here's the religion we're supposed to practice. Right? And kind of re-envision right, oneself you know, in, in nationalistic terms in the wake of these major kind of economic, political, religious paradigm shifts. And then you see a similar thing in the 14th century. And that's what I work on. It's at the end of the Mongolian occupation of Tibet. You again see all these scriptures come forward. Right, I think it's a similar dynamic in Joseph Smith's time, right? As America is kind of starting out and 
re-envisioning what it means to be a people and, and religion's role in that space, that you see a new scripture come forward to address those needs. Um, a similar thing is happening in Tibet right now. A lot of political turmoil as, as China invaded Tibet in the 1950s with the fleeing of the Dalai Lama and, and questions about who Tibet is as a nation and Buddhism's role therein. And we have texts, again, coming out of the ground to try to address those issues. That's a pretty good segue to one of the themes that I thought was most interesting about your article. Um, and Grant Hardy doesn't talk about this in terms of Book of Mormon translation, but you talk about how there's some scholarship that proposes that the gold plates are not just inert linguistic mediums, but they yeah, have some kind yeah. of agency of their own. And I, I was, I'd love for you to um, sort of talk us through that, like using the term as an example, like what does it mean for this thing to have an agent like a yeah, religious agency yeah. yeah the idea in the terma tradition is that because of these objects relationships to you know enlightened beings in the past they can like transmit certain power that has an effect on the person who then comes into contact with them which i mean i think is something in and i mean just in religion broadly I mean, I think, you know, it's a similar dynamic, I think, with the Eucharist, right, with the sacrament. Um, I mean, I think in Mormonism, we have this idea when we go to temples and we wear, you know, sacred garments, there's an idea that that objects that are set apart for a certain religious purpose, like, really have an effect on you. Right? They're not just symbolic, right? but they really work on you. Um, and And I think in Joseph Smith's case, you know, when we talk about, you know, translating a, a, a set of gold plates, just as, as, as Aaron was saying, right, we're pretty confident that for the most part, Joseph Smith was not even looking at the plates. His head's in a hat. So wh why do we need gold plates? If, if things are just revealed in his mind through a seer stone, through a hat, why do we have gold plates in the room? And some people have suggested Oh, it's because they were symbolic to reassure Joseph Smith that there was an actual text that he was translating from, which, of course, isn't always the case in Joseph Smith's, you know, other, you know, translation projects, right? I mean, we have the scroll of John the Beloved, right? That didn't work in that way. But I think, you know, in light of the, the Tibetan treasure tradition, it's something worth thinking about, whether or not just the physical object itself that was said to be associated with all of these you know, great beings, you know, throughout, you know, like the, 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 the Nephite and Lamanite civilizations and was able to exert an effect on Joseph Smith such that he had to have this object near him as he worked on. Can I, can I ask, I, I'm not actually sure that as a Mormon, I believe in the in, intrinsicness of these objects that you described, yeah. right? Like garments and temples. Yeah. Like I believe my understanding was that the objects themselves have no power on their own, mm -hmm. but our faith in Christ in essentially in our obedience to a commandment is what gives us protection for yeah. in, UT, in the use of the garment specifically, yeah. for example, or am, am, is that just me being like, are, are is there, is that me being too far away from the mythicalness me, Aaron, of the past like you are rejecting past. raiders of the lost ark as a holy text <laughs> um 
No, I mean, I think that's, that's a, I think it's a, like a totally valid perspective. Um, but I do think like, like, you know, for example, you think about the temple that like we consecrate like an actual space. We consecrate these material objects and you have to go to that place yep. and you have to be in that place. Right? And, and I think, you know, there's a reason why, you know, even though, you know, you can have faith in, you know, Jesus Christ and, you know, but, but you just still don't do those rituals at your house. Right. Yeah. Right. Like there's something about a consecrated space and the objects therein that is powerful. And I don't think that's even the way that I've always thought about how I engage at the temple or how I engage with the sacrament or how I engage with like garments or anything. But it's this perspective that by, you know, studying this other tradition, I've begun to think about more and think about the ways in which Joseph Smith engaged with things like plates and things like seer stones. Is maybe it's not just that Joseph Smith has a, a faith or he has a calling or has a responsibility. And then he kind of projects his own will on these objects and uses them in a certain way. But that, you know, the the kind of the 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 the, the, the flow of power can come in the opposite direction. That you can experience something from the objects and that they can change how you're viewing the world. Yeah, the, it, it um... strikes me as a very um like ancient Israel sort of opinion. As, as I think about, how, to be serious about Indiana Jones for a second, like the Ark of the Covenant did seem to have power unto itself and the objects inside it were there because they mattered and they had, they were significant because God had touched them. And yeah, uh, I, I think in our less mystical modern era, that's a harder thing for us to um, accept. We want things to be less tangible and more mystical, but um, we lose something maybe when objects don't have their own power anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, like the more I read about Joseph Smith's life, he seems to be somebody who inhabited a world where objects had kind of their own power. You know, I mean, even if you just look at like his treasure seeking, you know, career before he, you know, or I mean, it may, it may have continued into, you know, I mean, I think it was definitely part of like what he was doing as a prophet. But he seems to be somebody who had kind of the more mystical world. I think I'm 100% in agreement with you and with this idea. I, maybe I should say that um, Joseph Smith's time really did feel more, more magic-y. Mm. There was this, I'm only, Tanner, I'm only recently since I started the show becoming more familiar with old LDS stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. And we talked a lot about this a, a couple of years ago when we learned about the 50s and correlation and the mm -hmm. drive to distance ourselves from that stuff to appear more Protestant and mainstream. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think that's had a real effect on me. And I'm having a really hard time finding it, finding this to this particular aspect of the conversation like trying to get my trying to trying to see how it could be i don't want to be so gauche as to say that that there's no way that could possibly be real scientifically right right right, right. but that's a little bit of my reaction yeah yeah uh, the problem that i have always had with religion <laughs> is i want laws and physics and things to matter right yeah but now i want to talk against my own self for a second and remember Aaron, 
that there are things that act and there are things that are acted upon, yeah. right? And that we as LDS people actually do believe in the intelligence of atoms. Yeah. So there, there's another essay in the BYU studies issue we may get to on that very topic. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm really, really interested in this though, Tanner. <laughs> like I'm having so much fun hearing about mm -hmm. it. And um, I want to hear more. Tell me about um, what was my some of my questions from your article. Um, I want to get to the synth the um, I want to get to more of Joseph Smith's experience. Yeah. Right? Can you talk more about if you were a if you were a Tibetan monk describing how you would have interpreted Joseph Smith's experience, right? Mm -hmm. What would that sound like? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good that's a good question. Yeah, I mean what I'm you know trying to do with you know like the tool of comparison in this article, right, is to recognize that like I as a 21st century person and like the entire church and the way that we interpret this event, right, is very, you know, it's it's structured by our own worldview, even though we're only, you know, like 200 years apart from these events. Right? Like there are a certain set of assumptions that we bring into what could have happened, what could have actually happened, and what could not have happened. Right? And, and I think the tool of comparison is helpful to just break away a few of those assumptions right? and say, okay, maybe there are other possibilities that we didn't think of. And then we can try to see whether or not you know, in terms of like critical historical terms, whether or not certain ideas could have worked in Joseph Smith's own historical context after comparison kind of breaks us out of, of our assumptions. Um, and so what I, you know, trying to like apply the lens of the term of tradition, right, as far as I, you know, can understand it is, is, is I think a big part of it is to say that the, the gold plates don't have to just be objects of translation that somebody applies their mind to, but that they can have a, you know, like a reciprocal effect on, on a person, um, that they can influence how they're thinking and influence what's going on in their mind. Um, okay, hold on. Yeah. I want to drill down a deeper yeah, yeah, in this. Yeah. yeah. So in this, in this tradition that you're describing, and please correct me if I incorrectly use the language, because you seem to yeah. know very much the way to talk about these traditions right like when i even said the word tibetan monk just then i panicked in my head wondering if i had said that <laughs> correctly <laughs> okay so the objects themselves in this tradition have an intrinsic what how would you describe it yeah yeah so so in this topic i'm i'm drawing from the work of a scholar at at Stanford, a scholar named James Gentry, who studies this, this, this Tibetan Buddhist figure named Sodokpa Lojo Gyeltsen, um, who has written like his own theories about how both objects within the Terma tradition, but also in Tibetan Buddhism more broadly function. Um, and people within the Tibetan Buddhist tradition you know, debate him and disagree with him. But his idea is that objects have their own like agentive potencies that because of their association with 
enlightened beings in the past, they're able to almost act as mediums between, you know, the enlightened qualities of past figures to the person who, who has the objects. Yeah. So that's the idea that I'm, you know, playing with in this, in this article. Okay. I actually think I'm understanding you better now. So what you're saying is that there's exists already this tradition of an object itself having, I, I keep wanting to use the word power, but that also doesn't sound right. What is the word that you would say? Yeah, I mean, I think the word James Gentry uses is is like these like agentive potencies. Um, but I but he does talk about power. I mean, the title of his book is Power Objects in Tibetan Buddhism. It is a okay. it's a type of it's a type of power for sure. Okay, so so. A, 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 I already forgot it. Agentive, agentive potency. potency. I think is the word he uses. I don't want to misquote him, but well, we can. Why don't we look it up? Let's, let's get it right. You have the chance to. I can edit out time in the podcast. It's just file space. Yeah, I wonder if I do. I directly quote him in the article. What was the guy's name again? His name is James Gentry. He's a professor at Stanford. He talks about agentive properties, agentive powers agentive capacities he talks about objects having their own generative potencies um yeah okay so intrinsic i have two points yeah intrinsic yeah, potencies so i have two yeah. two points first of all this is something again that we may believe in our church because of the hold because the word agency and the you know, intelligence and everything is imbued in LDS yeah. culture, right? Okay, so that's my first point. But I think what you're saying is that because Joseph Smith sat next to the Book of Mormon, instead of using it, the mm -hmm. gold plates anyway, that that's interesting, right? Yeah. And it sounds yeah. a lot like this other tradition. That's what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm saying that you know, when we look at Joseph Smith, you know, when I was reading, you know, the secondary literature on Joseph Smith, you know, there's a question about, you know, it's a big question. What is Joseph Smith doing when he says he's translating? Right? And most people are going into the text, looking for archaisms and anachronisms, and then projecting out on what Joseph Smith was doing based on that evidence. Oh, you know, this text clearly isn't a translation of an ancient document. So he's a fraud. Therefore, you know, when he was said he was translating, he's just making stuff up. Right. And the other group is working from these, these, these archaisms and saying, okay, there's no way he could have known that. Clearly a prophet. So when he's sitting in his room, he must have access to what's actually on these gold plates. Right. He must be really translating words that are on these, these gold plates, right? And I'm saying, well, if you look at like the actual primary source description, none of those options really click with me because he's not looking at the, the actual text. He's sitting there with his head in a hat, right? But he also, he's not like rummaging through the Bible trying to make stuff up. He's like ritually coming every day to the same place. He's looking in a hat. He has scribes. It seems to be very mechanical in the way that Royal Skousen describes it. You know, Emma Smith talks about how, you know, he goes into like these almost like trance states and he's just, you know, you know, dictating the text. He's not returning to the text. 
You know, there's the story of him, you know, having an argument with Emma during the day. And then he goes and he can't translate. He has to go and make amends with Emma. Right? We have the whole issue with the, with, with, with the, what is it, the 110 pages that he loses. And then he has to repent and the angel has to, you know, give him permission again to, to keep working on the, the project. So I'm just saying that it, it seems like somebody's seriously engaged in what seems to be a, a, a ritual, you know, act of revelation. I don't know how else to describe it. So, so then, so then from that, I'm saying, okay, how how do we describe the role of the of the gold plates, right? So he doesn't seem to be somebody who's just making it up, but he's also not using them in the way that I translate a text, right? And then and then I and then I look at the the terma tradition. And I'm saying, well, this idea of agentive objects that kind of, it works. You know, I'm not saying because they did it this way, he must have done it this way. But I'm saying I think that's a that's a uh, significant possibility that that we should consider. And then you can go further, which I think our conversation is getting into a little bit, which is like, well, does does that work in terms of like LDS theology, in terms of like intelligences and 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 our ideas of agency. And that's an, that's an idea I haven't fully fleshed out, like not even close. I allude to this article by Rosen, Rosalind Welch in my paper, who, who I feel like has talked about agency in a similar way and suggesting there could be compatibility. Um, but I think that could be a full another, you know, project to think about, to think about not only Tibetan Buddhism, but also a whole entire field of new materialism that has cropped up in academia and, and whether or not the theories within that field could be enlightening for Joseph Smith. By materialism, what do you mean? In, in new materialism, it's it's a it's a field of study um, that has begun to talk about material objects as things that act, things that have agency, rather than just inert objects that we then project our agency on. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's a big body of literature. I reference a few of the scholars engaged in that field in my paper, but it's not something I go in in great detail or, or something that I'm like an expert on at all. But man, today this is great. Oh, tell me more about um ritual. Yes, one of the things that you just alluded to was this alignment. And in your article, yeah. you talk about how the monks in their translation efforts, right? Again, sorry if I'm not using the correct words, but they would have to you go do this these rituals to be attuned to receive these um messages. Yeah. Can, yeah. can you describe that? I mean, I don't want to step on uh, another religion's toes if you're not supposed if it's like because yeah. you said at one point secret things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, happy to talk about it. Um yeah, so oftentimes in order to reveal the text, you'll receive a scroll prior to the actual scroll that you're again, quote unquote, translating, that will have a set of instructions on rituals that you have to go through in order to produce this revelation. Um, they're typically associated again with what we call tantric Buddhism, um, which in terms of practice is often a, a form of a meditative visualization practice that consists of visualizing yourself as a Buddha 
and then effectuating enlightenment in that way. Um, and the, the practices that are associated with revealing these texts, um, they've been written about in one article by a scholar named Janet Giazzo, who I worked with at Harvard, and then another scholar named David Tremano, who's at the University of Virginia. Um, I think the title is called Longchempa and the Dakinis. Um, but, it, but it talks about engaging in these tantric rituals to reach a state of kind of meditative concentration within which you're able to receive the text. So the idea that you have to prepare yourself in order to receive this revelation, right? And you do so in a prescribed ritual manner. I mean, Joseph Smith took, what, a year and a half to translate the Book of Mormon? Yeah, something like that. I mean, but then the the, the argument... And this is an argument by, I think it's uh, this last name, Webb. Somebody I cited in that paper has talked all about, like, although there's this, there's this long time period in which Joseph Smith worked, the primary sources suggest it's really a period of just a couple months where most of it was produced. Okay. So correlation and causation, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Correlation is not necessarily causation. Right. But but it does waggle its eyebrows suggestively. Yeah. Yeah, it so, helps us to think. Yeah, I want you to waggle your eyebrows suggestively at this point at the um, proximity of Joseph Smith to the gold plates and talk more about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so again, right, with, with the work of comparison, right, definitely not saying... Because people in a totally different place, at a different time, in a different religious tradition, you know, acted in a certain way. That explains how Joseph Smith would have experienced, you know, his revelation of the Book of Mormon, right? Definitely not saying that. But, right, again, we have a certain set of assumptions that we bring to the study of the gold plates. And I think one of the assumptions that I go after in the article um, is one I think that Terrell Givens makes, who again, brilliant scholar, love his work. His work on the Book of Mormon is totally foundational to anything I'm doing. Right? But he has an idea that because the Joseph Smith claimed to discover a material object, that he's not just dealing with like nebulous stuff of visions that can be interpreted in a million ways. That because he has a real material object, that his act of translation is like grounded in material reality. And that then it opens us up to this binary of Joseph Smith was actually translating or actually not. And I'm saying that the, the, through comparison, we can see that people engage with material objects in totally different ways than that. And so just because Joseph Smith has a set of gold plates, it doesn't necessarily open up this binary. And so Joseph Smith could have been sitting in this room with a set of gold plates that were totally fundamental to his project, but in terms of enabling him in a way to access this revelation, as opposed to him somehow having the power to like, you know, look at characters from the other side of the room and then decipher them. This article is really fabulous. Was it part of your PhD? Did you get credit for it in that regard? Or your master's? No, no, it was something that I wrote for my master's thesis and then revised afterwards. 
Um, my PhD is all about reading Terma texts and then trying to understand the issues that they're dealing with. Um, so I deal with issues like political theology, the way in which religious concepts are trying to inform political concepts and political structures. Um, again, and this is all like the 14th century Tibet. Um, I'm interested in the kind of the conception of his, history and historicity that people are dealing with when they claim that these texts are historical um, and the importance of such a claim. I deal with issues of how these texts are authenticated, both like conceptually, how we've discussed, but also like in terms of how they use older, you know, like authentic, viewed as authentic scriptures and kind of tweak them and put them in new contexts and, and new narratives in order to both bolster the authenticity of their revelations, but also to address contemporary needs. Um, so what I'm doing today, it's not comparative at all. It's just fully in the field of Buddhist studies. Um, and then hopefully I'll return back to, to the comparative work. Um, but yeah. Yeah, and then I also like right now I'm in India uh, working on a project. I'm a, a group of monks with an organization that I work with have done summaries of every sutra and the, every scripture in the Tibetan Buddhist canon, which is a huge project. The Tibetan Buddhist canon is ginormous. It fills you know entire room, and um, we're working on translating all those summaries into English. Um, so that's dealing with you know older texts, some of which date all the way back to like the second century CE. It's working in going from the Sanskrit language to the Tibetan language to English. Um, yeah, yeah. So what I do today it's pretty different from what this this project is. Well, that leads to the thing I want to ask you uh, before we close. Um, yeah. So Tibetan Buddhism and uh, Latter Day Saintism. Um, uh -huh. Here's some interesting parallels, right? Like they uh -huh. um, to oversimplify it, they sort of both believe in an apostasy and a restoration. Um, they both, um, that for us as Latter Day Saints, we have this really deep memory of being crushed by governmental forces, even though right now that's uh -huh. not true. And right now, Tibetan uh -huh. Buddhism is has an existential crisis with their relationship uh -huh. with China. Um, and I, I'm curious, because um, you have you have your foot in, I mean, both your feet are in Tibetan Buddhism studies right now, but you know what it's like uh -huh. in Mormon studies. I'm just curious, if, how do Tibetan Buddhists feel about um, academic attention and, and how does it compare to how Latter-day Saints feel about that, would you say? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, you know, there's differing views. There's some people who view the, the an academic study of Tibetan Buddhism, but also just the popular interest by Westerners in Tibetan Buddhism as something that was prophesied. And it's something that is part of their like major contribution to the world and their responsibility to share. Um, and they're, you know, very engaged in that work. Um, and it's really part of their part of their, you know, practice. Um, and then there's other people who are very concerned about people appropriating Tibetan Buddhism and people not having the the deep kind of experience that they have in order to to understand it. Um, and they're concerned about 
how we try to mix Buddhism and science in the modern era and Buddhism and like, you know, mindfulness meditation. Um, and they're issued about, they're, they're, they're worried about issues of secrecy and like tantric Buddhism and how those can get studied in the wrong context and misinterpreted. Um, in some ways, it's a, it's a story familiar to religious studies in general, right? The religious studies discipline says scholars with no, you know, spiritual background in any particular tradition, never practiced, never worshipped, never been to a service, right? Can apply all kinds of critical lenses to try to describe and explain another religion, right? And then there's people who say, that's like totally crazy. How could you ever think you could comment on another religion fruitfully without actually experiencing what they're doing on a daily basis? Um, um, but I, the, the unique thing about Tibet is that you add in, like you mentioned, this kind of existential threat. Um, and so it kind of heightens those issues in a way. Um, I will say as, you know, as somebody who's, you know, a faithful Latter-day Saint and has considered myself a faithful Latter-day Saint throughout like my whole journey, I've come to really appreciate the work of other people outside of our tradition and the new lens that they bring to our tradition. So I've come to like really be a believer in the religious studies methodology. Um, and so I hope that I can bring that same value to the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. But also while trying, like, you know, I'm in India living with a bunch of Tibetan Buddhist monks, trying to really engage and have their respect. And How is it living with them? Oh, it's a, it's a blast. Um, you know, I'm in Northern India. Um, you know, we lose power a lot. The food's not very good, to be honest with you. Um, I get sick every once in a while. Um, but other than that, um, <laughs> being with them and being able to speak Tibetan and, and work on these, you know, ancient scriptures and, and be a part of this, you know, just participate to, you know, a very limited extent and in a living tradition that dates back thousands of years is, is yeah, it's wonderful. How did you get interested in it? Yeah, um, I growing up, I, I grew up in Yuba City, California. Um, and Yuba City, it's actually a very religiously diverse place. And I think the combination of like growing up in a very faithful Latter-day Saint family, but then also being exposed to so many other religious traditions, it like just inculcated an idea that religion is very important and everyone's religion is very important. And I just became interested in knowing more about it um and then you know went on a mission and became a much more like studious person much more hardworking person like academically in, in on my mission and then I went to um Utah State University for my undergrad and, and before I went I had begun to think about doing religion as a profession like being a religious studies professor, didn't really have a, like a strong idea of what that would entail. And so I just took a religious studies class. And luckily, two years before I got there, they had hired this guy named Dominic Sir, um, who had just finished a PhD in Tibetan Buddhism at the University of Virginia. And he was teaching the intro to religious studies class. And I really enjoyed like the whole class and the idea of religious studies. But I especially enjoyed his section of the class that focused on Buddhism, you know, because, I mean, he was an expert in, in Buddhism. And I feel like it was just 
I mean, I felt like the worldview was compelling. I started practicing meditation. I thought that was very powerful. But then just intellectually, I thought the tradition was was rigorous and, and worth studying. And so I started to take all of his classes. Um, and just my interest just kept growing. And then I went and did a master's at Harvard and learned Tibetan. And, and then I was like, well, now that I know Tibetan, I should learn Sanskrit because... When you translate Tibetan, it's helpful to learn Sanskrit. And then after doing that, I was like, well, might as well keep going. And so now I'm doing Mongolian and Chinese and just just kind of got got away from me. Got out of hand. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Tanner, we shouldn't keep you any longer. Hey, Boy, thanks so much for I feel, having me. Yeah, I feel like I learned so much. I feel like I have new and interesting worldviews to kick around and to think about. And Eric, when we do get to that episode about ob objects and atoms, I think this is going to be directly relevant. I think so. I, I actually, I sent your article to Steve Peck, who wrote the Every Atom and Agent article. And mm. uh, so, and I know, I know he read it. So, Oh, cool. He didn't tell me what he thought, but, um, but he, <laughs> he, he was, he was like very positive. I just don't know how many details. <laughs> oh, that's nice. Okay. Um. Thanks for being on the show. Um, I don't think our season's quite done yet. I think we're still in the summer, and I don't, I don't know that we're going to stop. I think we'll maybe just do a few more just for fun, right? Yeah. Why the heck not? Why not? No, I'll be interested <laughs> to listen. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. I'm glad. I'm glad you guys are doing this. It's been fun. Um, as I mentioned, we're a proud member of the Dialogue Podcasting Network, and um, we'd like to thank our. Um, person that provided our music daniel foster smith and uh, again if we have a discord server um we've had some we had some great discussion last time about our episode of the atonement and um like to thank everybody that's participating there you can join it by clicking the link in the show notes and um that's it um thanks tanner thanks eric thank you, thank you.